Now take your Bible and open to John chapter 19. Uh, John 19, I, I need this as kind of a starting off point before we go to the issue of the darkness, but let me just kind of read 19 verse 25 through verse 30. All right, 19 starting in verse 25. <clears throat> God's word again says, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but they were standing by the cross of Jesus' mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And when uh, then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine up upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for an opportunity to rejoice together in this fellowship. We're thankful for Christ, thankful for your mercies that are new to us each and every morning. Indeed, great is your faithfulness, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that you give to us through that word uh, that points us to Christ, that points us to uh, the hope we have of the Savior, the hope we have not only in him, but the fact that uh, you're the sovereign and you control all events, and we can rest in that great reality. So we pray you'd open the word to us as we study uh, your truth this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as I said, we're starting off here in John 19. We're kind of helping us uh, think through this issue. We're picking up the text kind of right here in the middle uh, of the scripture, and we're looking at the death of the Lord Jesus, which we will develop, Lord willing, even further uh, next week. Uh, there's never been a greater miscarriage of, of justice, nor more evil done to one man than that which was done to Jesus. Now, we've been going through that for a long time. He was absolutely innocent. He, he was absolutely guiltless, innocent of any sin, all sin. Uh, yet, he endured a series of sham trials, both by the Jews and the Romans, he was beaten, spat upon, mocked, uh, and then in spite of repeated declarations from the Roman governor uh, of his innocence, he was condemned to die. He was brutally tortured, he was treated with uh, the greatest barbarity, uh, tormented, physically brutalized, scourged, and then he was crucified. So again, the murder of Jesus Christ is the <clears throat> greatest act of uh, human depravity ever seen on this planet by evil, vile, wicked men. And yet again, this is all being done under the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God uh, for the forgiveness of sin. This is God's plan. This is God's plan for forgiveness of sin, for reconciliation between him and man. We first uh, see it start to be played out all the way back in the book of the beginnings, the book of Genesis, back in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God promised that he would send the seed of the woman in response to the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve. God promised to send a deliverer, one who would remove sin, one who would be uh, bruised temporarily, but one who would permanently crush Satan's head. The one born of a virgin, the one chosen from before the foundation of the world to be mankind's perfect substitute. The one depicted all through the Old Testament with all, through all the types and ceremonies and uh, figures. Uh, the one who would finally come and by the shedding of his blood finally and fully, completely atone for sin. And that again being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we've been working our way through uh, John's account of the crucifixion, and I told you 
John wants us not to look at wicked men, but John wants us to look at Jesus. That's the way he writes. That's the purpose of his writing. He wants you to see the majesty and the glory of the person of Jesus Christ on display. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's his goal in writing. Now, I pointed out to you as we're working our way through the text that John's laid out four aspects or four events in the cross that emphasize that, that magnify and glorify the person of Jesus Christ, the deity of the person of Jesus Christ. And we've gone through most of these. Now, first, we looked at specific Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled, uh, Old Testament scripture. And then we looked at the superscription written uh, by Pilate and placed uh, above the head of Jesus on the cross. And again, just for the context, go back up in verse 16, and let me just kind of read it up to this point. John 19, verse 16. So then he delivered him to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So I told you that the inscription that was placed by Pilate on the cross above the head of Jesus is really the work of the providential purposes of God. It's God the Father making sure that the entire world knows. The, the reader of Greek, the reader of Hebrew, the reader of Latin cannot fail to see and understand and know exactly who's hanging on that center cross there in Golgotha. It is the King of the Jews. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Verse 23 says, The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took the outer, uh, his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier and also the tunic, now the tunic was seamless and was woven in one piece. And they said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then the last time we continued on, the third thing that um, uh, John brings forward, the third issue here is the selfless love uh, of the person of Jesus Christ, right? The scripture being fulfilled, the title over his head, and now his selfless love. The compassion of Jesus Christ towards others while he's suffering greatly upon the cross. And again, specifically, the compassionate care that Christ shows towards his mother. Verse 25, therefore the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to, his, uh, to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, again, John's bringing this <clears throat> to the forefront <clears throat> because he's trying to point out the sharp contrast between the uh, callous indifference of the soldiers and the hatred uh, of the uh, Roman or the uh, Jewish religious leaders. He's bringing out this contrast. He's, he's comparing it and contrasting it to the love of Christ, right? To the love of Christ and to the love of those who have a love for the person of Jesus Christ. They're not afraid to be seen with him at the cross. They're not afraid to be seen with him even though he's being executed by 
the Romans as a criminal and the uh, Jewish religious people, uh, Jewish religious authorities would think he was, uh, or, or claimed him to be a blasphemer. So you have their love for Christ, again, hatred in the background, love for these people, for the person of Jesus Christ, and then the compassionate care of Christ. Again, stop and think about when you have something wrong in your body, whatever, your back, your leg, okay? If you're anything like me, all you tend to think about is your back or your leg, right? I mean, we tend, when we're in pain, we tend to think about ourselves, okay? I would, I would venture to guess that no one has experienced the amount of pain that Jesus Christ is experiencing. And I bring that to the, to the forefront just to remind us he is in absolute, literally, that's where the word comes from, excruciating pain. He's hanging, nailed by his hands and feet. He's been scourged, right? His flesh is open uh, on his back. And there with that great pain and torment, he's still thinking of other people. His focus is not on him. It's always on others. He wants to make sure that his dear mother is cared for. And we spent a lot of time <clears throat> last week looking at the issue of the tremendous error that's made uh, uh, of uh, Mary worship. And I told you John doesn't even mention her here in the, in the, by name uh, here in his text. And Matthew and Mark don't even, in their versions of the events of the cross, don't even acknowledge that Mary is present at the cross. And I said to you last time, I think that's significant because if Mary really is elevated to the position that the Roman Catholic Church falsely elevates her to, then you'd see something of her importance throughout the New Testament text, but you don't see it there because it's not there. Other than obviously the great privilege she had of being the woman that would carry Jesus, she is no different than anyone else. She's a sinner in need of a savior. If you missed last time, uh, and you might want to go back then and listen to that sermon because there was quite a bit of information I put forward uh, that was helpful, I think, having concerning a biblical understanding uh, of the person of Mary. And it's not just the Roman Catholics that are uh, in great error on this issue, but there are more and more Protestant churches, um, un un unbelievably, that are turning to Mary worship and elevating Mary to a position that you'll not find in the Bible. Mary was not sinless. Mary does not have any supernatural powers. Mary's not the queen of heaven. Mary doesn't play any role in anybody's salvation. She was a sinner just like everyone else, and she acknowledges that fact in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. Mary speaking, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Right? God, my Savior. She understands she's a sinner in need of a Savior. Now that brings us to verse 28 here in our text. And these two words after this. <clears throat> After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. I told you that those two words after this are significant here in the story. Now, the, there's an, a, a significant event that occurs right at this moment. Now, John, for his purpose, he doesn't record it. But I told you last time, I, I want to look at it. I want to dive into it this uh, morning. And it's uh, the event that happens here is the supernatural darkness that comes at the cross. Upon the cross, Jesus says seven things. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second thing he says to the believing cross, or the believing uh, thief that's next to him, he says, today you'll be meet with me in paradise. And then he says, woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. And now all of this is before the darkness. When the darkness comes, and then the darkness is ended, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, as the darkness is passing away, I thirst. That's what we just read there in uh, uh, verse uh, 28. 
says it's finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, three before the darkness, four after. After this, again, verse 28, after this, after the giving of uh, uh, his mother into the care of uh, John and after the darkness, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. Again, that's the fifth saying uh, of Christ from the cross. And again, John, for his purposes, why he writes, again, everybody's writing from a different perspective, from a different purpose. And John leaves the event of the darkness out. But I want us to look at that event. And I think it's fascinating. I think it's highly informative concerning, concerning what's going on at the cross. So we're going to take a detour this morning from our, our study in the book of uh, uh, John. And I want you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> And I'm just going to kind of pick it up here somewhere in the middle of the story. And we're going to start in 27. Matthew 27, verse 27. When the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered uh, the whole Roman cohort around him, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. After weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to, be cru to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man, Siren, uh, uh, Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place of called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink uh, mingled with gall, but after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots, and uh, sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. They put above his head the, the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, you are, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, uh, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers also had been, uh, who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him until, until the dramatic event that happens here in verse 45. Verse 45, from now, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, uh, when he, they, they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again <clears throat> with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and 
the earth shook and rocks were split and tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion who was there with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said truly this was the son of God. Now there are a number of supernatural events that occur here at the cross depending on how you count them six or seven uh, that give a commentary on exactly what's going on at the cross in the death of Jesus Christ. And again I just want to focus on, on this one the darkness here in verse 45. From now the sixth hour, darkness fell uh, uh, upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now the Jews divided their days up in, into two portions, two 12-hour portions beginning at sunrise or 6 a.m. Therefore, the sixth hour would be what we would call 12 uh, uh, noon. The ninth hour would be 3 p.m. According to Mark, 25, or Mark 15, verse 25, Christ was crucified in the third hour or 9 a.m. So the cru crucifixion lasted approximately six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And, and that was not, a, an, uh, that was not a, an unusually long uh, crucifixion. It was pretty short. Uh, and, and in fact, the relatively quick death uh, of Jesus uh, surprised Pilate when Joseph of Arimathea uh, comes and asks for the body. So the six hours that Jesus was crucified is divided up into two distinct three-hour segments, and the darkness, again, being the main uh, division between the two segments. And during the first three hours of the crucifixion, Jesus only uh, uh, breaks his silence three times. First, he prays for mercy for his persecutors who are uh, executing him. Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Secondly, he grants forgiveness of sin uh, to the repentant thief that is hanging next to him on a Another cross, Luke 23, verse 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And the third one was the issue of taking care of his mother in John 19, 26 and 27 that we just looked at. So with the exception of those three occurrences in the first three hours from nine to noon, Jesus utters nothing, no words. He utters no words, he's silent. But not so the wicked, evil people who are all around him, the wicked, evil men who are mocking him, ridiculing him, laughing at him. So from nine to noon, the first three hours of the crucifixion, there's Christ hanging upon the cross in utter silence. But then from noon to 3 p.m., darkness falls upon all the land, the text says. So at midday, when the sun is at its zenith, when its sun is at the height, when the sun shines the brightest, darkness begins. Now because of the rotation of the uh, earth uh, in relation to the sun, we understand that half of the world is dark at any given moment. But the text says this darkness fell upon all the land, or, or, or the, 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 the whole earth. Now obviously the question is what caused it, and then is this the kind of darkness was the entire globe becomes uh, totally dark or could it just be this land here the, in the context of the land of Israel and, and the answer is we honestly don't know but we do know from when a time when the sun would be normally shining at noonday all of that land becomes in a moment changed into black darkness it's interesting there are a number of accounts of ancient writers 
historical writers uh, that uh, in their documents, apart from the pages of scripture, uh, speak to a day of strange darkness that spread, spread over the entire earth. Uh, Eusebius quotes one, he says, there occurred the greatest darkening of the sun which had ever been known. It became night at midday so that the stars shone in the heavens. Right, instantly dark, sharp, the stars appear at the noonday. And we know if we went back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 10, we know that God brought darkness uh, on Egypt, but he brought it only there on that land. So God can do either. He can bring it on this specific land here in the land of Israel, or he can engulf the entire world in supernatural darkness if he so sees fit. But the first question is, what caused the darkness? What causes the darkness to fall over all the land, over all the earth? Well, lots of suggestions, obviously. Some say, well, you know, it was just a dust storm a local heavy cloud cover that gave the appearance of darkness, right? So can a local heavy dust storm, a local heavy cloud cover make darkness the kind where the stars are shining bright in the noonday? Probably not. Some have suggested it was a mere coincidence. It's nothing more than an eclipse of the sun. Well, that couldn't be possible because it's the time of the Passover. And the Passover is the middle of the month, and the month always begins with a new moon. And by now, in the middle of the month, the moon is full. And if the moon is full, it's on the opposite side of the earth, away from the sun. Therefore, it can't eclipse the sun. Again, darkness fell upon all the land. It's not a natural event. It's some kind of supernatural darkening that's going on here. Some kind of supernatural phenomenon that is an instantaneous blackness. The lights have just gone out. And it's right in the middle of the day. So again, everyone's standing around. They're mocking. They're jeering at the person of Jesus Christ. Everybody's making a joke of him. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, darkness. Eerie, frightening, panicking, disturbing darkness. Now, the rabbis used to teach, and it's recorded in the Talmud, that if the sun goes dark, it's going to be because of the judgment of God on the world, because the world has committed a great crime. And in fact, that's what's going on here. The world is creating, uh, has committed a great crime in the murder of Jesus Christ. So again, why the darkness? Why did the darkness cover the land when Jesus was crucified? Now, I tell you right up front, I'm deeply, inher uh, deeply indebted to Greg Harris, written a wonderful book called The, the, the Darkness and the Glory. Uh, he was with us a number of years ago and preached, just a tremendous man. And he really has challenged me in my thinking of this event. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. If you go back and look at all the three uh, synoptic gospels, they record the event. Obviously, I said John doesn't. But the three of the synoptic writers record the event. So what's going on here in this event? What is God doing and what does he want us to learn uh, from this very important issue that's going on with the darkness? What's the meaning? Now, again, I've said it's not a natural phenomenon. It's a supernatural phenomenon. So there are a variety of views that people put uh, forward when this supernatural darkness that came on, on the land. Some come and say, well, the darkness represents a vast assemblage of satanic forces that were present there at the crucifixion. After all, uh, Satan is the ruler over the domain of darkness, of Colossians 1.13. And God had given him a certain amount of authority, Satan, a certain amount of authority here at the crucifixion. You remember the Lord says, in Luke 22, verse 53, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So some think the darkness is Satan gathering his forces in an unprecedented matter, uh, an unprecedented manner here at Calvary. 
Another uh, view says the darkness is God's testimony to individuals, such as the Roman centurion. That's why I read all the way to that part. Uh, her attending the crucifixion in a supernatural way, trying to draw uh, their attention to the things of God. People who are at this point not really uh, concerned with the things of God, uh, not interested in that. But the darkness says, look, God is at work here. God, again, trying to, this view says God's trying to draw attention to Christ because he wants everyone to know that this crucifixion, and I told you there are many of them, this crucifixion is different than all the others. This crucifixion is different than any other condemned criminal uh, who's been crucified. God the Father bearing witness to the gravity of the event by sending darkness over the land. And, and this, uh, this uh, idea has some element of truth in it. Another view says that since Jesus Christ was the light of the world who enlightens every man, the darkness is now disappearing because the light of the world is dying. I remember previously Jesus warned John 12, verse 35, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed from him and hid, uh, from them and hid himself from them. So those who would hold this view would say, well, uh, that at the cross, again, it's the departure. This is exactly what Jesus talked about. This is the departure Jesus spoke about. The light is being removed and darkness is about to manifest itself. Still others come along and they say, well, God brought darkness uh, uh, to the sun, kind of dropped the veil, as it were, over the suffering of his son in an act of sympathy, sympathy to uh, cover the nakedness and the dishonor of his son. Still others would come along and say the darkness was a divine act of protest against the, the world for their committing a great crime against uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the last view, probably the most popular view, is that when the darkness comes, there's a divine separation that is transpiring. The divine separation. And the reason, again, this is probably the most popular view, and the reason that many people hold this view is the cry of Jesus, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you look very carefully at the text, you'll note that that cry comes at the end of the darkness, not during the darkness. It comes at the end of the darkness. And the second reason uh, that many people hold on to this view, that some kind of divine separation, is that people believe that a holy God cannot look upon sin. Therefore, he has to turn away from his son because we understand that God is making him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf right here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So the logic to that view says that God is turning away from sin, therefore he's turning away from his son, and that relates to the darkness coming. But we need to think real carefully on this issue. We need to think very carefully, we need to think very biblically. And consider very carefully this idea that God cannot bear to look upon sin. That God must turn his face away from Christ. Again, I think you probably heard that view espoused many times. And while the Bible does contain many references to the judicial act of God, turning his face away or hiding his face from people involved in blatant rebellious sin, there are no specific scriptures that say that God cannot look upon sin. There are no specific scriptures that say God cannot look upon sin. Now, of course, uh, some people would take uh, Habakkuk 1.13 to support their view here that God can't look upon sin. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too, pu too, too pure uh, to approve evil, and you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. 
But in the context of Habakkuk 1.13, that verse deals with God looking upon evil without responding to it. It doesn't say that God must turn away his face from sin. So again, I don't think the Bible supports this idea, whatever, that God can't look upon sin. For example, think of the first people on the planet, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, what did God do? Came to them, right? When they sinned, God came to Adam and Eve. And if God can't look upon sin, then he would never have come to the man and the woman to deal with them. And I think there are other examples of the fact that God does look upon sin in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts uh, of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their crime because, their or because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their suffering. And they're being treated sinfully, poorly, right? God saw it. Centuries later, evil men come and they commit sin in God's own temple. And he condemned them by the means of his prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? In your sight, behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. The reality is, as Genesis 16, 13 says, God is a God who sees. God sees everything. Mark 4.22, nothing is hidden except that which is revealed. First uh, Samuel 16, God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, what's the heart like? Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is what? Desperately wicked, right? Deceitful above all things. Matthew 15, verse 19, out of the heart come, of man comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, uh, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Listen, God sees everything. God sees everything. So the truth biblically is not that God can't look upon sin. The truth biblically, the reality is it's man who cannot stand to be in the presence of God's holiness because of his own sinfulness. That's the issue. The reality is man who cannot stand in the presence of a holy God because of man's sinfulness. Isaiah 6 verse 5 Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. After Jesus teaches the multitudes, uh, uh, he blesses Peter in, in his attempt to fish. Uh, Peter hauls in this big catch, and uh, Peter you know, has been fishing all night and uh, catches nothing, and uh, he's all of a sudden greatly confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. Luke 5.8. When Simon Peter saw, again, such a great quantity of fish that are being hauled in, the, the nets are breaking the, and the boats are beginning to sink. When Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Remember the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John, uh, when he uh, saw the glorified Christ, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. There's nothing in the text that says that Jesus looked away from John. Although it says in verse 14 of that chapter that Jesus' eyes were as a, like a flame of fire. That's the penetrating gaze of Jesus Christ who knows all things. So the all-powerful God looked and at his beloved disciple whom had rested his head on his chest, remember, during the 
Passover feast back in John chapter 13? He didn't look away from it. The reality is, biblically, God has the capacity to look upon sin. Because, listen, he's the one who's going to judge the world. He has the capacity to look upon sin because he's the one who's going to judge the entire world. And everybody's going to give an account before this God for every word they've uttered, for every deed that they have committed. And listen to me, for every thought that we have thought that is unrighteous. Every man's going to give an account. Revelation chapter 20, there's a great white throne judgment. And all were damned who stand there uh, before the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to give an accounting. All the books are going to be opened. And that day they're going to be judged according to their deeds, it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. So Jesus biblically does not turn away from sins or sinners. And if Jesus didn't have the capacity to look upon sin, how could he ever deal with sin, sinners? How could he ever deal with the person of Satan who is the evil one? Scripture says that God, that God has interacted with Satan in the past, that he uh, interacts with uh, Satan in the present. You see it in the book of Job, you see it in the book of Zechariah. And he continues to do say, the same in the present age. He'll do the same uh, in the future. God judges Satan. So biblically, you can't hold to the position that the darkness is appearing here at the cross because God is turning his back on, uh, on Christ because Christ is being made sin for us. And God can't look upon sin. That, that understanding, which again is probably the most popular view of what's going on here in the darkness, just doesn't hold scripturally. It doesn't work biblically. And again, if we want to understand the darkness, why the darkness, then we're going to have to work at it a bit, and then we're going to have to ask, what, not what do we think the darkness means, but what does the Bible tell us darkness means? Now, to, pay, to, to help us kind of work through this and, and to understand it biblically, we've got to pay very ca careful attention to the, the text and, and realize that all three of the uh, gospel writers, the synoptics, uh, 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 they use a specific time marker with regard to the darkness. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the same word, the words until, U-N-T-I-L, until, just to describe the darkness. Again, I look there at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land. Here it is, until the ninth hour. <clears throat> so the, part, the point is that darkness has a specific beginning and a definite ending. And the cry of Christ, in verse 46, about the ninth hour, Christ cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It comes at the end of the darkness, not during the darkness. Again, all that to say the darkness could not have been there because the Father is turning his back on the Son or turning away from the Son. The darkness occurred for three hours before that final cry of Christ takes place. So the darkness resides for three hours on the cross, and for three hours Christ says nothing. So again, the question is why? Why the darkness? Now, most of the time in our thinking... Uh, when we think about God revealing himself in, in the Bible, we think of God revealing himself in, in light. We think of words like glory and brilliance and shining and burning. God being the father of lights. First uh, John uh, 1, 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's true. There is no darkness in God because he's pure, he's holy, he's perfect. So the shining brilliance of God's glory is an attempt, again, 
for us to try to describe his nature. But yet there are a number of references in the Bible that associate God with darkness. And darkness with his very presence, not his absence. So while God is light, God can use darkness if he chooses to do so. It's a fascinating uh, portion of scripture. I don't think I'll have a turn there. I just listen for a moment. Second uh, Samuel 22, verse 1. David spoke the words uh, of this song to the Lord that day, and the Lord delivered the day that delivered him from the hands of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, the stronghold, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. Uh, thou dost save me from violence. Verse 4 of that chapter says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Verse 7 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to God from his temple and he heard my voice and my cry for help that came to his ears. Verse 8, Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the heavens were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured, uh, coals were kindled by it. Verse 10, he bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. And he rode on the cherub and flew and he appeared on the wings of the wind. Verse 12, and he made darkness canopies around him as a mass of water, a thick cloud uh, of the sky. So David is in a bunch of trouble. He, he calls out to the Lord. The Lord hears him, and the Lord comes down to him, and he comes down, the Lord comes down to David to help him surrounded in darkness, which is, listen, evidence of God's presence. The darkness, when God comes to rescue David, is evidence of his presence, not his absence. Now, some have suggested perhaps the darkness is that surround the Lord when he comes is to conceal his glory because... Uh, uh, if we would see the full glory of God, uh, that would consume the creation, just like in the same fashion in Exodus 33, where God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock so he won't be exposed uh, uh, to his glory. I, I don't know, maybe. All that to say is the darkness is not necessarily indicating the absence of God. In fact, it can indicate God's special presence. And I think that's what's going on here in our text. It's not that God's absence, but it's the very opposite. God is very present. In verse 45 of Matthew 27, God shows up. God shows up at the cross. Again, listen, it's straight up high noon. The sun would have been straight up over the head, middle of the day, burning bright. And then all, all, all of a sudden, instantaneously, it goes black, pitch black. Again, all these wicked men, evil men, mocking, blaspheming uh, Christ, and then the world goes pitch black dark. Not clouds, not an eclipse, not Satan and his kingdom. It's God. There's no other answer. There's no other explanation except at this very moment, God has shown up at the cross. And for three hours, the entire land is in darkness. Again, there's no street lights, right? There's no street lamps. I mean, it was in the middle of the day. None of the street lamps would have been lit. All instantaneous darkness, right? And you couldn't move. You, you couldn't walk. What would have gone through the minds of the Jewish individuals, again, who are part of this event? Their, their minds would have gone to the uh, issue that God often associates himself scripturally with darkness. Uh, again, just stop and think about it. And, and, and you know this 
when you think about it, the book of Genesis, he comes, God comes and he makes a, a, a covenant with Abram. It's his name at the time. Uh, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. Abram, whose name means exalted father, is later going to have his name changed to Abraham, the father of a multitude. God changes his name to encourage him for what he's about to do and what's about to come from, uh, for him in the future. Uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, God declared to Abraham, and you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Uh, chapter 17 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall now be Abraham, for I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations, and I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. So God is making a promise to a 75-year-old nomad who's a wanderer, who has no children at this point, but God is promising him that he's going to be the father of a multitude and the entire earth is going to be blessed through him. In fact, go back to Genesis 15 and let me show you this. Genesis 15. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Then there's a discussion between Abram and God over his offspring and the future generations that are going to come from him. And it's not going to be Eleazar. Eleazar is his servant. But God's going to promise him there's going to come one from his own body, from his own loins. And God tells him, look at the heavens and count the stars if you can count them, because that's how many descendants you're going to have. Look at verse 6. God speaks, here it is, verse 6, then Abram, right, then he, Abram, believed the Lord, and God reckoned to him his righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord, how may I know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite each other and did not cut the birds. So God is going to make a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abram. There are no conditions. There's nothing that Abram needs to fulfill. God's doing it. God's idea. And God's going to seal the covenant with blood. God actually puts Abram to sleep, so we, he, and everybody who's reading this knows it's God who's doing this, not him. Verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So God is showing up in the darkness to ratify the Abrahamic covenant. Again, it's God alone who's taking responsibility for the fulfillment in the literal translation of what I just read there in the Hebrew would be behold, like explanation mode, behold, right? Terror of great darkness. Or behold, terror, even great darkness fell upon him being Abram. So the reality is that the two separate entities of terror and darkness are two separate entities of darkness and terror didn't occur. What the reality in the literal text is the terror was the darkness. Terror was the darkness. The terror was the darkness of God's presence. So God shows up to ratify the eternally important Abrahamic covenant. And he shows up in the darkness. It could have come in light, but he didn't do that. 
He came in the darkness. Behold, terror, even great darkness fell upon Abram. Now, admittedly, we're uh, challenged in our thinking, I think, because we're always just think of God in light. But God is God. He can use the darkness if he chooses to do so. So we need to think biblically. It's what the Bible teaches. When God determined that he was going to take the uh, people of Israel out of the land of Egypt after Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh refused to let the sons of uh, Israel go. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, just listen. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness, listen, which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Thick darkness that can be felt. No one's moving. God is in the darkness. After Israel leaves the land of Egypt, the nation of Israel comes to the foot of Mount Sinai, and there's going to be the uh, execution, the carrying out of the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus 19:16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud uh, upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. And so all the peoples were there and the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was in smoke because of the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. See the same thing, Exodus 20, verse 18. The, the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. The people understood that the presence of God had just arrived. The presence of God is associated with the supernatural phenomenon that's occurring on, on the mountain and unexplainable darkness. It's not just some kind of random thunderstorm that pops up. But the pitch black darkness, the darkness, again, a darkness that can be felt, that elicits fear. Again, darkness coming in this thick cloud that is upon uh, the mountain. So in the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional unilateral covenant, God ratifies by his own word, by his own work through blood, God manifested himself in the darkness. He manifested his divine presence in the darkness. At the Mosaic Covenant here, uh, it's, it's a conditional covenant that Israel promised to keep, but they failed. God manifests himself, his divine presence, in the darkness. Now you go, well, you just talked about smokes and clouds and thunder. And you didn't say darkness. Okay, uh, I figured somebody would ask that question. So if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, you don't have to do that. Just listen. Deuteronomy gives some details that are left out of the Exodus account. Deuteronomy 4.11. And you came near and you stood to the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire in the very uh, uh, heart of heaven and darkness, a cloud and thick gloom. And the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire and you heard sounds and words. You saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you with his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that this is the Ten Commandments, which he wrote upon two tablets of stone. Deuteronomy 5, verse 23, came about when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness uh, while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me and all the hands of the tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord has shown us his glory, uh, his greatness. We have heard the voice from the midst of the fire and we have seen today that God speaks with men yet we live, right? God manifests himself here at the Mosaic covenant, his divine presence in the darkness. 
And more than that, symbolically, if you start looking at the Bible, when darkness comes and God's in the presence of that darkness, it's always seen as a sign of judgment. God always is seen in judgment when he comes in darkness. In the Old Testament, there's a very familiar expression called the day of the Lord. It describes the coming day when the Lord's going to bring a final eschatological, devastating, destructive judgment upon the world. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, see the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy sinners with it. The stars of heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Before them the earth quakes and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice from before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer, obviously, is no one can. No one's going to survive when the day of the Lord comes. And, and this judgment, this devastating judgment God brings upon the earth. You go to the end of the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, or end of that chapter, Joel chapter 2, verse 30. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. When a man flees from the lion and the bear meets him or, uh, or uh, goes home and leans his hand against the wall and the snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? even gloom with no brightness in it. Amos 8 verse 9 will come about that day declares the Lord that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Uh, uh, Zephaniah uh, uh, 1 verse 14 uh, near is the great day of the Lord near and coming quick listen the day of the Lord and the warrior comes cries out bitterly in that day and will be a day of wrath a day of destruction and anguish a day of trouble and ruin a day of darkness. Darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Darkness is used in the Bible to describe divine judgment. Darkness is used in the Bible to describe divine presence in judgment. So again, most certainly the Jewish people around uh, the cross would have at least been struck by that event. Some of them, I would think, would have come to an absolute fear and terror that the Lord is actually present. The Lord God is present at this event. So again, no longer are these wicked men and evil men, devils, the center of the drama at the cross. Now the main character is God himself. God has arrived in the darkness to unleash judgment. God has arrived in the darkness to unleash judgment and to pour out his divine eternal wrath. On at least three different occasions, uh, Jesus Christ referred to hell as a place of outer darkness uh, he said it's the ultimate place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, verse 13, Matthew 25, verse 30. All of these places Jesus called hell outer darkness. Unrelieved blackness, the judgment of God's presence. Listen, Satan is not the king of hell. Jesus Christ is the king of all. 
Satan will be condemned and judged. And all sinners will be under the active judgment of God because of their rebellion and refusal of mercy. So someone once said, uh, referring to the day of the cross, that God brought hell to the Jerusalem. He's bringing judgment. He's in the darkness, in the presence of God in judgment. And just like God brought darkness at the Abrahamic covenant, just God, as God brought darkness to the Mosaic covenant when they were ratified, listen, the book of Jeremiah, God promises a soon-to-be-exiled, rebellious people. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the, uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land by my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I put on their heart, I will write it, uh, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 600 years transpires. 600 years transpires from the writing of Jeremiah 31, and still God had not ratified the new covenant. Nation was exiled, it returned, still no new covenant. The promise was always in the future. It was always unfulfilled until John the Baptist shows up and he starts to herald the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, shows up and he starts his ministry here on the earth. But it's interesting if you look at the, all of the teaching of Jesus, the new covenant doesn't appear in any of the extended teaching sections that Jesus gave. No reference to, the, to this eternally important covenant of God until he's alone with the eleven. Just before the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed, when Jesus alters the sacred Passover ceremony and he reveals what someone has turned a revelationary bombshell. Right, a revelationary bombshell. Paul describes the uh, account. He says this, 1 Corinthians 1, or 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord himself in Matthew chapter 26, again at the Passover meal, that he's changing into the first Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, verse 27, when he'd taken the cup and given thanks to it, uh, given thanks uh, to them, he gave the cup saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. Right? This is my blood of the covenant. The covenant, a definite article. The covenant, not just any covenant, but the covenant that has been promised and the covenant that hasn't been ratified yet. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. It's referenced back to Jeremiah 31. So here we are at the cross. 
from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And God is in the darkness. God is ratifying the new covenant in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who had been slain from before, from before the foundation of the world. So again, what's going on in the darkness? It's not God's absence, it's God's presence. Because how could God possibly be, be absent from the new covenant that he is making for the forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of his son? From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land till the ninth hour. From noon to 3 p.m., hell comes to Jerusalem. Hell comes to the land because God has shown up in judgment. And God has brought supernatural darkness to the cross in order to draw a man's attention to the fact that God is there and he is judging sin. God is there. He's judging sin. He's pouring out his wrath upon sin. Now, God's not judging the sin of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has none. Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, he who knew no sin. But Christ is there upon Calvary's cross. The innocent one standing in the place of the guilty. And the innocent one stands in the place of the guilty because that's how God's plan of reconciliation works. The innocent one has to assume the guilt of the guilty for reconciliation and uh, of sin to occur. And here's exactly the word of the Old Testament prophet being fulfilled. Uh, Isaiah predicted this is what would happen when the Messiah came. He would suffer. He would die for the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrow he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smit, uh, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Verse 10 of that chapter, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. This is what's happening at Calvary. This is what's happening at the cross, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is divine activity. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The, the Lord is putting him to grief. It's the Lord's doing. Second part of verse 10 there in chapter 53 gives the theological reason. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God's going to bless his son for his obedience all the way to death. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. His knowledge of the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquity. So, in the Old Testament, Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac with his own hand. Yet God spared Abraham because there was a ram caught in the thicket, which was the substitute. But there's no substitute for Jesus. He's the picture of the ram caught in the thicket. There's no substitute for him because he is the substitute. Jesus is the substitute, the only substitute, the one and only substitute for all men. And God the Father is striking down his own son by his own hand. God the Father is crushing him. God the Father is putting him to grief. 
God the Father is pouring out divine wrath upon his son for our sins. For the forgiveness of our sin. That's what's happening there in the darkness of Calvary's cross. It's God's judgment upon sin. And God is declaring that the cross is a place of divine judgment. God the Father is unleashing his divine eternal wrath upon his son, judging sin again, our sin, because the only thing that God pours out is wrath upon his sin. So here's God the Father's commentary on the judgment of sin, and here's God's commentary on the issue of the cross. Much bigger than just one man dying. This is divine judgment on sin, detested to by the supernatural darkness as midnight comes in the noonday. First three hours of the crucifixion, Satan and his uh, forces and wicked men savagely assault and mock, mock the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the halfway point, God shows up. And he unleashes the full extent of his wrath upon his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have absolutely no idea, no concept, no ability to comprehend or understand the amount of sacrifice and suffering necessary on the part of the eternal Christ to atone for even one solitary sin, let alone all of the sins of our cumulative sins of our, of our life. We have no idea what it takes to atone for one sin, let alone all of our sins. And Christ is suffering not just for one person, but he's suffering for all who will believe upon him. Again, I told you uh, uh, previously, we, we tend to focus on the physical suffering. The physical suffering is nothing compared to the spiritual suffering. And, and the, the immense suffering of Christ is infinitely, on a spiritual level, beyond our comprehension. That's why Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane anticipating what was about to happen. That's why it caused him to sweat great drops of blood. So much anguish, so much mental, emotional turmoil. The, the prospect of bearing the sins for all who would believe. He is crushed. And he's being crushed under the fury of God's wrath at the cross. God's deep-seated, burning anger against sin when contrasted to God's perfect holiness. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed or stands against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. So God pours out his wrath upon Christ. And for those who reject God's mercy and his offer of forgiveness of sin through his son, through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross, death will not be your escape. You cannot escape God. And you can't escape death. We, we mess around with too many things in this world that are absolutely irrelevant the issue is when you walk out of here to the today, or if you're watching me on the live stream, you better be answer the question, be able to answer the question properly. Am I ready to face God in death? Am I ready to face God in judgment if I don't know Christ? Because the Bible says the point in a man wants to die, and then comes judgment. And those who reject 
God's mercy that he's offering through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he's pouring out his wrath, not for his own sin, but for all of sins of men who would repent and believe upon Christ. Again, death's not getting you past. Death's not getting you past. On the contrary, those who fail to believe while they have time, fail to repent in their earthly life, are going to enter into an eternal, never-ending, active state of the wrath of God. It will be an eternal condition. We can't comprehend eternity. It will be an everlasting fate that will never leave. There will be no hope of escape. John, in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation, verse 9, he says this, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink the, 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 the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. And those who worship the beast in his image and whoever received the mark of his name. On the cross, Jesus Christ is bearing that wrath. Jesus Christ is bearing the full wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus Christ is bearing the full wrath of God due our sin. And Jesus Christ upon the cross in the darkness of Calvary is receiving from his Father eternal hell on behalf of those who would repent and believe upon him. The darkness is not the absence of God, it's the very opposite. The darkness is the presence of God. The full fury, a divine wrath, divine vengeance, infinite wrath, infinite punishment, infinite judgment. For three hours, Christ absorbed eternal hell for those who repent and believe upon him. For those three hours, that's where 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes in, where God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now listen. True children of God don't have to worry about God's wrath. First Thessalonians 1.10 Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how great your salvation is if you're a believer in Christ. Romans 5.8 God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us much more having been Justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God having put, been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And surely this, this event of the cross and the thought of Christ absorbing God's infinite wrath for us ought to make us all stop and pause and consider when we are being tempted to sin. 
because Christ is upon the cross, dying there, absorbing this infinite wrath, absorbing hell, suffering because of us, suffering for us. And that reality should all make us shudder and loathe our own sin. When we consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, <clears throat> to teach, as some uh, do in the modern church, that we can still live in sin, still cling to sin, and still be professed believers in Christ is an utter abomination. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land to the ninth hour. In the supernatural darkness that fell upon the whole earth, God did not turn his face away from Jesus Christ. But in the darkness, the Father looked fully upon the Son and determined that he must die. And God is judging sin because the wages of sin is death. And Christ is tasting death and the full fury of God's wrath against our sin. Jesus dies on Calvary's cross not as some kind of martyr, not as some kind of great noble, for some great noble cause, but he dies upon Calvary's cross as a vicarious substitute. He bears in his body the penalty of our death as our sacrifice for our sin. bears the penalty of every man who will ever again repent and believe upon him. That's what John meant at the beginning of the book when he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So I ask you, if God treated his own dear son like this in order to provide forgiveness of sin, what do you think God will do to the one who rejects his mercy and his gracious offer of forgiveness through his dear son whom he loved? The writer of the book of Hebrews gives us the answer. He says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have not done so to this point, you need to repent of your sin. Flee to the Savior, the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved before it's too late. Death will not allow you to escape God's coming judgment. The Bible says it's appointed a man wants to die and then comes the judgment. But the Bible also says for those who are believers in Christ, gloriously, Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore what? No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our Father and our God, we stand in absolute awe and amazed at you. Of your tremendous love for sinners like us and the great cost for you personally. To judge sin in your dear son, although he was sinless, he stands in our place and takes the wrath, bears the punishment that is due us. Amazing love, right? The hymn writer says, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Help us, our God, to understand these truths. May these truths transform and change our life, the way we act, the way we live, the way we think. The hope that we have to a world that is heading as fast as it can towards judgment and towards this eternal wrath that you, our Father, offers uh, an escape, 
right? Faith and repentance from sin, faith in the Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us who have been touched already by your mercy, we just express to you our great gratitude and our love and thank you for dealing with us in such kindness. We are always amazed at your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.